is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Wells Fargo busted again. It's agreed to pay $3.7 billion to settle charges that had harmed consumers by charging illegal fees and interest on auto loans and mortgages. It also incorrectly applied overdraft fees against savings and checking accounts. It's the largest fine against the bank, which has spent years trying to rehab its image following past scandals. We'll go in-depth into whether this is just a Wells Fargo issue or a banking industry problem. L.A. Mayor Karen Bass announces her plan to reduce the number of homeless people on the streets. We'll look into whether this can really work. And streaming companies are cutting down on the number of new scripted shows, and we will look into why. Can we learn from the COVID pandemic and prevent the same mistakes? A team of global health experts is hoping so and has a new project to help future generations will go in-depth into their plans. If you're looking for a last-minute Christmas gift for an adult in your life, maybe buy them a toy. No, not that kind of toy. Uh, more adults are now collecting toys than ever before. We'll look into why. What kind of toy were you thinking of? I don't want to say. We start with what's wrong with Wells Fargo. Mina Tadros is CEO of Tadros, uh, uh, Tadros rather, Capital. He follows the banking industry closely. Thanks very much for being with us. So uh, that is a very large fine uh, that Wells Fargo has to pay. I think it's $1.7 million is the actual uh, fine, and then another uh, $2 billion that has to be given back to uh, its customers for all kinds of things that didn't uh, go the way they were supposed to go these past few years. Why is it that they keep getting into trouble? What is it about Wells Fargo? Thanks for uh, having me. Uh, I think it's a matter of systematic failures that the bank has consistently done over the past couple of years. And I think uh, this uh, uh, first started in 2016. Um, I used to think it's a matter of employees, but unfortunately, I believe it's a matter of uh, upper management executives in particular. Um, and I think the issue will uh, continue unless there are criminal charges that um, the UK should probably consider. Is this a matter of somebody being greedy or is it a matter of uh, Wells Fargo as an institution feeling like the competition is so tough, we got to do anything we can to get ahead? You know, I, I think uh, uh, these harsh economic times are are pushing people to do different things. But I think for Wells Fargo in particular, that has uh, been the case well before the pandemic. Um, so I, I think it will continue to be the same. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being creative and trying to figure out how to uh, uh, get more value for corporate shareholders. But I think with Wells Fargo, uh, it's arguably criminal. Yeah, I mean, uh, you were talking about the pandemic, uh, the uh, so-called fake account scandal that uh, they had. That was, what, 2016, wasn't it? 2016, that's right. Yeah, so that was, of course, before the pandemic. It does raise the question, though, in at least my mind, is it that Wells Fargo is is so different from other banks? Uh, or do other banks do the same thing? It's just that Wells Fargo got caught. Well, I, I think it's probably a little bit of both, um, and I'm speculating here to an extent at least. Um, a lot of banks do different things. I've had some uh, very bad uh, both business banking um, situations as well as personal banking situations. Uh, but I think as a, as, as a matter of um, uh, something that is systematically large, I, I would argue that Wells Fargo is doing it on a, on a national level. And it just kind of shows you that you could be one of the biggest, you could be in the most uh, regulated jurisdiction, 
Um, and if you are a bad actor, you're still going to find a way to um, uh, do something bad uh, somehow. Uh, it's all about cost benefit opportunity, right? So uh, if the penalties are low and the reward is, is higher, then, um, you know, unfortunately, many, many banks may decide to uh, take that risk. Yeah, other than than raising the penalties for breaking these rules, um, what more can regulators do? Because you you can find them after the fact, but then the people who are harmed don't always get all of their value back that they lost due to the malfeasance of the company. So, uh, what more should regulators take a look at doing, and 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 what more do does the federal government need to do to kind of maybe avoid these in the future? I, I think avoiding them may be a little bit hard, but I think having serious repercussions is more likely uh, a long-term sustainable solution. Um, so, you know, banks are already regulated. It's it's one of the most regulated industry on the planet, right? But it, this is still happening. So, so let's assume that this will continue to happen and let's have stricter uh, uh, um, uh, punishments. And by stricter, I'm referring to uh, criminal uh, charges. Uh, that that's the only solution that that I have. So, if somebody is looking for some way or place to kind of park their money, should they a go to Wells Fargo, b go to another bank, or c keep their money in their mattress? Um, you should, from a risk management perspective, I would argue that you should probably do all right because you have <laughs> to perceive problems before they happen, and I think that's the problem in general with with risk managers. They wait until the problem happens, and then everyone has a solution to it. So I think keep a little bit of cash safe. I have a little bit of cash safe, and hopefully no one will ever know where it is except my 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 wife and baby girl, right? Because um, you just don't know what's going to happen. So try to find a better uh, uh, reviewed bank or plenty of resources online that can help you find a better bank. Try to have that one-on-one personal relationship with your banker um, because I think that's probably the safest bet. So if you're, if you're having money, if you're having problems, problems accessing money uh, from your bank account or if you're having um, issues with your, with that banker, then that I think is a, is a big sign that you should probably find a different bank. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Mina Tandras, uh, CEO of Tandras Capital and follows the banking industry very closely. I keep all of my money in this room. One thing you can do is maybe uh, work in an industry that doesn't pay you a lot of money. Then you don't have that concern. Like I said, I keep all my money in this room. <laughs> when, when we come back, the new mayor of Los Angeles announces her plan to get homeless people off the streets. But is it going to work? Right now, though, uh, L.A. County supervisors have endorsed L.A. Mayor Karen Bass's plan to fight the homeless crisis. Bass talked about her plan with the supervisors. That was just this morning. It's called Inside Safe. Now, the goal is to temporarily house homeless people at motels and hotels in the city without the need for sweeps. So is it going to work? Stephanie Glasky-Gamer is president and CEO of L.A. Family Housing. Stephanie, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so uh, catchy name, Inside Safe. Uh, I guess that means if you're inside, you're safer than being out on the streets. Makes sense. Is it going to work? I think it'll absolutely work because we've seen it work before. This is very similar to what we did at the start of the pandemic when we made units available immediately to move folks in off the streets. But at that time, it was really in order to... um, minimize the risk of spread of infection from COVID. But we saw when we had the resources, meaning the units to move people in, dedicated outreach teams could make it happen. LA Family Housing alone moved about 700 people inside within an eight week period. So this will work. 
All right. So the operative word here is uh, temporarily. And when you're talking about the homelessness crisis, these temporary solutions have a, a kind of a way of being more temporary than we thought they were going to be. Uh, If this could be part of a step to a long-term solution, what would that look like? Well, I think whenever you're talking about helping folks transition out of homelessness, it is the combination of housing with services. Whether that housing is temporary or permanent, it needs to be connected to services. And that's what is the ingredient for success for Insight Safe. It's going to have dedicated professional case management teams, connecting with people living outdoors and moving them inside. But their support doesn't stop when they go inside. The support will continue as we work to find permanent solutions for those folks that we moved indoors. So I'm curious, uh, lots of bright, uh, very bright people have been working on the homeless problem in this area for many, many, many years. So why wasn't this done a long time ago? That's a great question, and I think um, there's been some resistance to short-term housing when we have a permanent housing deficit, and so our resources were really dedicated to permanent solutions. We can't do either or. This has to be an and strategy where we're providing the short-term solutions and the permanent housing solutions. We need both, and Mayor Bass is lifting up the urgency of our crisis and acting in response to that by bringing in new resources for more interim housing, but not pulling that away from permanent solutions. You know, the homeless crisis is so big um, that a lot of experts will tell you, and I think that everyone would agree, that you're not going to solve homelessness. Uh, Well, these little steps help, but you're not going to solve homelessness without a a total rethink of culture and society and and how you view safety and security and what people get paid and how people get housing and how you take care of people's health insurance, etc. And people just aren't willing to go that far in this country. Uh, And and that's what we keep running into. If you want to solve homelessness, there are some things that you can do. But then the public looks at that and goes, well, we don't want to do that. So we're we're stuck back at these temporary uh, uh, plans. And I, I don't want to belittle inside safe. I think this is a great step. But sometimes it does feel like we're taking these little tiny baby steps and then we keep going back a few big steps later on. I, I think there's some truth in what you just said. I wouldn't necessarily say these are baby steps because it's a monumental step and it's an immediate step. So the pace of the response is what's so critical with Inside Safe. Look, our mayor has been in office for one week and she honored her commitment on day one at 7.30 in the morning, rolling out her emergency declaration. She is taking monumental steps, but just doing them at a fast pace. What will be critical is to do these steps coupled with the long-term solutions. Because as you said, You only end homelessness when someone has a permanent home, and there are lots of strategies to secure permanent housing for our folks currently experiencing unsheltered homelessness. I am curious, Stephanie, since the homeless crisis is a crisis that is apparent in many large cities, not just here, New York, Chicago, Boston. Has the strategy that that Mayor Bass has now implemented been used in other major metropolitan areas? And if so, with what level of success? I think the 
success of moving people inside, whether you move them into interim housing or into permanent housing, has been shown across the country. When you dedicate the housing resource, then you will have success moving people inside. What we have uh, fallen short of in Los Angeles is saying we want people to move because we don't want them outside, but we haven't dedicated the housing resource. When you dedicate a housing resource, you clearly can move people inside. They have a place to move to. So we've seen this across the country in many different communities, not only tied to the interim housing though. That's the key, is that it has to be some form of inside housing so we can move people inside safely. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Stephanie Klansky-Gamer, President and CEO of LA Family Housing. And a little bit later, there's a new project that looks to better prepare the world for the next pandemic. Is that going to work? And adults are buying toys, but not, you know, toys to give to kids. It's for them. There's even a term for grown-ups who buy toys. No, it's not weird. We'll tell you what it is, though. Right now, though, are we past the golden age of streaming? Remember when it seemed like an endless amount of new shows were coming out all the time and a lot of them were really good? Well, that's not the case anymore. The number of scripted TV series orders made by networks and streaming companies is on the way down. Guy Bisson is a media and entertainment analyst. He's also the executive director and managing editor at Ampere Analysis. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I guess my first question would be, is this a matter of Maybe not so much that they're wanting to do fewer shows, but that the streaming the streaming companies are learning what hits and what doesn't better. So now they're going to focus on the ones they think have a better chance of getting a lot of numbers. Very good question, and I'm sure that's part of it. But actually, there's a huge number of moving parts going on in the industry at the moment. Um, we've come out of a COVID-induced boom to streaming, so that's tailing off. Um, the market is heavily saturated, so the growth in the number of customers is flat or sometimes in decline. There is intense competition with all of the studios now having their own streaming services, and international content is becoming ever more attractive, and more and more of it is getting made outside of the USA. So the decline that we're seeing is very specific to the US market or scripted content at the moment. So I'm curious then, what is the next big thing? I mean, you know, network television kind of died a long time ago. Cable was supposed to be the way to go. But, of course, people have been cutting the cord for, for years now. Then streaming was supposed to be the place. But the content is, as we've just talked about, uh, starting to dry up, or at least a lot of the quality content. Uh, God knows people haven't returned yet to movie theaters in any sort of numbers equivalent to uh, before the pandemic. So where are people going for their entertainment? Well, it's fair to say they are still going to streaming. Streaming is, is where it's at and where it's going to be at for the foreseeable future. Um, we're just seeing a shift. So we're seeing perhaps less of the very high budget drama um, and an increase, for example, in reality TV and in light entertainment, which is working for streamers now that they're in the mode where they need to retain customers rather than um, acquire new ones because they're saturated. So different types of content are getting made. It's lower cost in many cases. It's not to say that high-end drama is not still getting made, 
but it's tailing off from the big peaks that we saw when we talked about peak TV for many, many years. Um, streaming is where it's at. Uh, of course, we're moving into a phase where that will increasingly be advertising supported rather than just paid, but it will still be with the streaming market for the foreseeable future. Yeah, you talk about uh, saturation, and that, that is an issue because my wife and I, we, we like a lot of TV shows, and a lot of those shows are on different platforms and different services, and we sometimes lose track of what we're watching where, and we forget, oh, we were watching that show. We forgot about it because, you know, you have to log into each different streaming service when you want to watch that show. At what point does the saturation get so bad that it starts to kind of make the industry begin to collapse in on itself? Yeah, I don't I think it's it's saturation in terms of the the number of services people want to take and the number of households who don't already have streaming. So the market potential is less. But to that specific question, it's an important point. Um one of the differences between the broadcast linear TV experience where you had a very simple um, program guide, a grid structure, and streaming is that streaming is mainly on demand. It's actually much harder to find stuff when you're jumping in and out of different navigation interfaces and different services. So I think one of the next phases of streaming needs to be what happened with traditional cable. Someone aggregates and someone creates a universal interface. The issue, of course, is the competitive and all sorts of other reasons. Mm. Um, streamers are not particularly eager to share their data uh, to help yeah. with that universal navigation. Yeah, especially when it's a lot of different companies that are into it and they don't want to compete with, uh, they don't want to allow the competition on their platform either. Guy Besson, media and entertainment analyst and executive director and managing editor at Ampere Analysis. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The COVID-19 pandemic will end at some point, but we know that will not be the last one. Another pandemic will almost certainly hit. The questions are when, where, and how bad will it be? Also, will we be ready for it? And will we learn from the mistakes made during the pandemic? A new project just being launched is hoping to make sure the problems faced during this pandemic won't happen again. It's called Becoming Better Ancestors, and it's from the Center for Global Health Innovation. With us now is the project's co-developer, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, CEO Emeritus at the Task Force for Global Health and former assistant U.S. Surgeon General. Doctor, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So, so what are a, a couple of the things that hopefully we've learned from our current pandemic that will help us for a future one, which is inevitable, right? They are inevitable. And I should also point out that COVID was not the first. In fact, a horrendous pandemic was smallpox. Most people forget it now because they're immunized and there is no more smallpox. But in the last century alone, smallpox killed more than 300 million people. It was a terrifying disease where your flesh basically rotted on you while you were alive. It was terribly painful. It was awful. But we were able to eradicate it. It was the first and so far only human disease ever wiped off the face of the earth. And we think, let's learn some lessons from that. And let's apply those to this epidemic and to those that come in the future. And what would that lesson be? Because uh... 
you know, I, I don't know if with COVID, this is a virus that we can eliminate and wipe out, uh, you know, like we did the smallpox uh, epidemic. But uh, how can the thinking of how we tackled smallpox be applied to the COVID pandemic and future pandemics that are probably going to be respiratory based? Well, what we've done is we've taken nine lessons from the eradication of smallpox, and we think this makes a framework for applying to public health problems of all sorts, certainly for infectious diseases like COVID. And uh, these lessons are available for free on the website, ninelessons.org, the number nine. But let me just mention three of these that are really critical. The first lesson is that this is a cause and effect world. If we understand the causes, we can change the effects. We use science to understand the relationship between causes and effects. And if we can understand that, we can change the world for the better. That's the first lesson. Use science. And we know science is constantly changing, so we have to stay on top of it. The second relevant lesson is know the truth. Know your enemy. Where's the virus located? Share the truth and act on the truth. Even if getting a full count of the diseases is not going to be politically popular, it's very important to know where your enemy is. Know the truth and share the truth. And the third very relevant lesson here is avoid certainty because it's the Achilles heel of science. That means don't think you know everything you're going to know about the virus now. And this is one of the problems with COVID. The virus is constantly changing. We get new variants. Its immunology changes. And we've got to let people know we are not certain. We're with you. We'll share with you what we understand, but avoid certainty. When you are certain you know the answer, you stop looking for any more information. You think you know it all. So these are three out of the nine very important lessons that certainly should apply to the way we address COVID now. Okay, but is another lesson perhaps, and maybe it's in the nine, but if it isn't, maybe it should be, uh, to avoid uh, having politics enter into uh, whatever the, the mix is that is needed to battle a pandemic? Because uh, you mentioned smallpox. I don't know. Was, was that a very political event? It wasn't political per se, and I think that the world was much less polarized around smallpox and the eradication brought together even political enemies like the USSR and the United States worked together to help eradicate it. But uh, I would change one thing from what you said. It's not that politicians need to keep their hands off the problem or the solution, because the policies that we're going to use to control COVID have to be formulated by politicians and they have to be formulated by scientists working. Yes, no, with- no, but but what I meant, Doctor, is is the polarization uh, that that uh, the degree to which people in this country, in particular, seem to have chosen political sides over a pandemic. Uh, I don't think that was the case in previous ones, was it? Um, I don't think it had been so polarized, but when we had the HIV AIDS epidemic, there were a lot of political positions. 
I think what's really critical is that this first lesson, this is a cause and effect world, and we've got to rely on science. And the science should not be biased. We We have to know the truth. But what's important is that scientists learn how to work with politicians. And the third lesson here, I think that you're pointing to, is we need coalitions. We don't need red states versus blue states policy. We need the policy that's going to protect everyone to the best of our ability. And that requires that we work together, that we understand each other, and that we talk together and think together and get solutions that are agreeable around the world to everyone. It's going to take working together to address a problem of this magnitude. All right. Thank you so much. Dr. Mark Rosenberg, CEO Emeritus of the Task Force for Global Health and former Assistant U.S. Surgeon General. Hey, remember waking up maybe on Christmas Day and seeing all those toys under the tree and you couldn't wait to play with them all? It just takes you back to when you were a kid. Good times. Now adults are reliving those childhood experiences, kind of. Many are now buying toys for themselves. Data from the NPD group finds adults are responsible for one-fourth of all toy sales annually. That's around $9 billion worth, and it's growing. And there's a term for these people, kidults. James Zahn, a senior editor of the Toy Insider, thank you so much for joining us. So my first question is, so I can get my my brain back on a family-friendly track here, is what kind of toys are we talking about? So we are talking about the classic toys that we all grew up on decades ago that are making a huge comeback as part of the retro rewind. But then there's this other side, which are toys that are actually designed for adults, What we're looking at is think about like this. You were playing that Toys R Us jingle when I came on here. Well, He-Man, Masters of the Universe, 40 years uh, this year. It's the 40th anniversary. Also, Care Bears, it's the 40th anniversary. And they have products for kids, but then they have retro spin geared towards adult collectors. Okay, well, collecting is one thing, I suppose, because uh, I guess people collect both for nostalgia and because they think at some point it may be worth some some money as an investment. But uh, are adults also getting these toys just because they want to play with them? Absolutely. And I think what happened was during the pandemic, when everyone was forced into lockdown, so many people, whether it's families or folks that are grown up but they don't they don't have kids, they were rediscovering the joy of play. And that has taken, you know, we we know for years that there have been adult toy collectors. That's not a new thing. People collect action figures going back decades. But what's really happened is these new spins on old classics. And I'll give you an example here, which is Light Bright. We all know the classic Light Bright that came out in the 60s. But then now, this company called Basic Fun has light bright wall art and these are large they're about 18 by 18 they have high definition pegs and they're very very detailed and an adult can sit down and do these with these thousands of pegs and create elaborate pop art or they did a version with transformers they also did a stranger things light bright wall art set and this is something that just looks cool and it's framed it's a toy you're playing with it but then you're hanging it on a wall in your home or office 
and it's like art. And we've been seeing a lot of that. And it kind of taps into like, you know, doing a puzzle is a very therapeutic thing that people have always enjoyed. But now they're sort of taking that spin and they're putting it on toys. But is it mm. is it also true, though, that adults are are taking stuffed animals, you know, stuffed toys to bed with them? <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure where you heard that, but I <laughs> wouldn't what discount I it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do know. So there is a trend right now in plush plush toys have been just a behemoth the last couple of years. And there's a few brands that are leading that charge. But the biggest of the bunch is called Squishmallows. And they were developed by this small company called Kelly Toy. And it took off, so they got acquired by a bigger company, which is Jazzwares. And these plush, squishy animals and characters uh, really did attract a, a growing number of adult collectors that were using them first, what we were hearing was they were replacing the pillows in their house with them. Hmm. So, you know, your throw pillows on your couch, well, now it's Baby Yoda as a Squishmallows, uh, that type of thing. And there are thousands of these characters available and how quickly they they just blew up. I okay. mean, it is fascinating. I'm going to be a Grinch here and ask this question. How much of this is a marketing thing that uh, marketers looked at this and said, hey, let's make this a trend and tell people this is what's going on. And then you create the self-fulfilling prophecy of adults go, hey, I want to buy some toys. I don't think that's the case at all. And if you kind of look back a couple years, and of course, we see a lot of the numbers on this stuff. Um, one of the first companies that was like an early identifier of the adult trend was Lego. And what I equate that to is like when we were kids, we'd build model kits with glue and paint and the X-Acto knife and sit and build those kits. And some adults did too. But now look at how elaborate the Lego sets are. And essentially that has become modeling and it's become a hobby for people. And Lego identified that some years ago to the point where they actually have an executive on staff whose job is uh, working on creating products for what they call AFALS, which is adult fans of Lego. And this predated this whole kidult trend. Kidult is a relatively new word or kidulting. Um, it just sort of became a part of the mainstream psyche here this year. But Lego has been marketing towards adults for years. And uh, two years ago, they launched their first big ad campaign on a global level called Adults Welcome. And here in the U.S., they um, Target really, really went in all in on that. And they had end cap displays that were geared towards that collector and that builder. So uh, I don't think it's a marketing ploy as much as it is something that was developing organically. And now everyone just sort of noticed I wonder how kids react to their parents playing with toys. I mean, their own toys, not the kids' toys. Well, I have two kids, and I'd say that uh, they enjoy having dad play with the toys with them. Uh, but wait, wait, but oh, so wait, 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 stop. So, 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 so wait. So do you have your own toys, not, not their toys that you're playing with? Do you have your own, and what kind do you have? I do, and uh, I, I am in an interesting situation, which is that I'm editor-in-chief of the Toy Book, which is our trade publication, and I'm senior editor of our consumer publication, Toy Insider. Mm -hmm. So I'm surrounded by toys all day long, but I do collect certain things for myself. So very specific niche here. Um, 
I do like the the new school versions of G.I. Joe and Masters of the Universe that have come out. But even before that, I was really enjoying 164th scale diecast, so like Hot Wheels and Matchbox, that were based on pop culture vehicles. So I have three display cases in my office that have vehicles like the on the base you got like Batmobile or the Yeah, but do, the but do you but do you just keep them in a in a case or do you play with them? I'll get them out and play with them with the kids. I won't I won't play with them by myself. <laughs> oh, come, come on, come on. No, no, no. Well, cuz that would be odd. Wait, no, are you sure? You, it, come on. Uh, when the have kids Have you seen Spaceballs? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when the kids are asleep, tell me when the kids are asleep and the, and those those quiet moments when you're on your own, tell me you don't play with their toys. Well, sometimes you got to sit and admire the articulation yeah, there you of the go. action figure or the, the paint, the premium deco uh-huh. on it. You uh-huh. know, really just – and when you break open the action figure and you enjoy yeah. that fresh out of the package mm-hmm. new toy smell, uh-huh. you know, that's for everybody. Absolutely. Play is for everybody. All right. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, James Zahn, senior editor of The Toy Insider. That's going to do it for In-Depth today. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow with lots more toys.